Please pray with me. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered today on this Tuesday. We're thankful for um, the sunshine, and we're grateful that temperatures have, have fallen, and we look forward to an even cooler fall. We're thankful for the fact that you have called us here and provided this opportunity to come together and to study your word. And we, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who indeed is among us at the church and within each of us, um, that you will guide us, fill us with energy and enthusiasm as, as we go forward. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, is there anything you would like to talk about before we get going today? I do have a question, Scott. Yes, Jim. I have been on this Old Testament journey with you for a good number of years, and I've enjoyed it immeasurably. And what strikes me about it is it's a, just a great piece of literature about a people and a religion that goes back thousands of years. I just can't get over that. Is there any other literature that's out there about a people and or a religion that goes back as far that's as well written? There, so Jim's question to me, for those online, is that when you come to the Old Testament, you are really reading the writings of a very ancient people. And so much of it is just good literature, like the book of Samuel. It's just well written, the stories are well told. And his, his question, for, and of course, in the Old Testament, well, you don't just have the stories, we have the Psalms and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature and all the other pieces, the prophetic literature, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, some of that stuff that's kind of freaky at times. So the question is, do other, did other ancient peoples have writings like that? There are a lot of other ancient writings, but they're not writings like that. Pe people often lift up for example, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which came out of the Babylonian past and try to compare it to the origin stories in the book of Genesis and so forth. But the Epic of Gilgamesh is basically a hero tale. That's a very common thing, is a hero tale. Genesis is not a hero tale. Most of them in there are anti-heroes. Most of them, most of the, you know, um, Isaac is cheated by his own son, conspiring with Isaac's wife, you know, Jacob's mother. And so it, it, the, the writings are there, but they are really quite different, and that needs to be appreciated. And my view of these writings, particularly the, the historical narratives, is that they are written, that they come from an oral telling, right? So when I'm taking us through this, I try to picture myself as Uncle Jacob around the campfire telling you this story. And people's eyes are getting wider and wider. But it is the story of their ancestors. It is the story that makes them a people. That's what the genealogies do. They're not genealogies because of, you know, one, two, three, whatever it is we do now with the DNA, they are genealogies because they are meant to carry the story forward. When you come to Jesus, it opens with it, Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy because it is the story in that genealogy leading up to Jesus. So, yeah. So in that way, 
in my view, they are unique. There are other ones, but they're not like, they're not like these. And a book like Samuel, I just admire just the, just, just the storytelling expertise in Samuel. Because if you're a storyteller, you want a story that engages people, right? And I think these, a book like Samuel helps to engage people in the Bible because the stories are so good. And they are the story. And of course, they, it isn't like, you know, every story in the Bible doesn't have a moral. They're just telling you what people did. It isn't like Aesop's fables or something. But there is a thrust to the stories of David here, right? That are as applicable, that the, the, the meaning of it or the warning of it is as applicable today as it was 3,000 years ago. Because even though we all come from different cultures and all that different stuff, there are certain things that, that we humans share in common. So anyway. Okay, Pat. How does the Quran uh, fit in time-wise and everything too? Sure. So Pat's asking how the Quran fits into this. The, so you have the writings of the Old Testament, which are basically, I love Philip Yancey's book, The Bible Jesus Read, because by Jesus' day, the writings that make up your Old Testament were settled and done and people accepted that these were the sacred scrolls, okay? Then we have the New Testament. The writings in the New Testament are all done by about 100 AD, but it takes another couple hundred years before everybody buys into the final list of 27 writings, okay? Muhammad comes on the scene in the 7th century A.D., much later. And the Quran is simply the, the Arabic dictation of the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, who was said to be, by his followers, illiterate, right? So he's in a cave, the angel Gabriel comes to him, there you go, you get surah after surah after surah. That's what like the chapters are sort of, that's what I would call them. But they're called surahs in the Quran. And then he comes out of the cave and he, he has people write this down. So it is um, very different than scripture. No, most Jews and Christians don't really see this as having been dictated by God. It's, it's a, it's a, if we did see it as dictation, it would be much harder I think, to, to hear the Bible well. Part of the problem with the Quran is that because it's seen as God's dictation, there are a lot of Muslims who want to live by it strictly today as it was lived by when it was first written, which is about 700 AD. And from that you get these extreme you know, manifestations of Islam. Now those don't, they don't call, they don't view themselves as extreme. They view themselves as the one trying to call Islam back to its true self because God dictated it. How could you possibly do anything else? So, you know, in a few weeks on Sunday morning, 
um, at 11 o'clock I'll be talking about Islam and we'll talk about the Quran more because it's, it's in, in Islam it really functions almost like Jesus. The Quran is God sort of present on earth and, 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 and that's why for Muslims the, the treatment of the printed book is very different than the way we view, the way we treat the Bible. Because this, we're focused on Jesus. This is a printing of these ancient writings, yes, but, but I'm perfectly comfortable throwing away a Bible I'm not using anymore, not the Quran, because it has this sense of, of being God present um, on earth, or the imminent God is, is the Quran, because it's God's dictation, word for word, in Arabic. That's why for the most conservative Muslims, and that's a lot of them, you don't translate it into English. You learn Arabic so that you can read it. You see? Yes. I know. I tried to read part of the Quran. Yes. And after a period of time, I gave up because yeah. there's so much repetition. It's a lot. Well, you know, there's a lot of repetition. It, 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 it comes from different periods in Muhammad's life, um, and it's all kind of mixed together. Right, so you can kind of find things that you know you want to, for this and that, and it seems to be the opposite. But really, kind of the same thing is true in the Bible. If you want to come to the Old Testament and find a wrathful God who sits on a mountaintop and smites everybody, you can find that, right? But is that the, is that the best understanding of the Old Testament? It is not. So anyway, um, yeah. So, anything else? Well, let's get back to a story, okay? <laughs> now, I want to go back. I, I know we got a little ways past um, chapter 14, verse 23. But I want to go back because it is really the lead-in to, to what's coming, okay? So let's go, it's kind of like the prologue, I guess. So chapter 14 of 2 Samuel, verse 23. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. Because we have, remember the old woman that Joab recruited to go trick the king and get the king to realize he needed to bring his son back. His son Absalom having run up there after murdering his brother Amnon. Okay, so Absalom is going to come back. You know the man is scared, right? King's justice might fall on him. He did murder his half-brother Amnon, no question about it. He knows it. Everybody knows it. A lot of years have passed, but, you know, there's, what have we said? there's no statute of limitations on murder in our society, much less theirs. So Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, but the king said he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. And so David refuses to see him. So Absalom comes back, right, presumably to see his father, 
and get it all out and find out what's going to happen and reconcile or not reconcile or whatever, but he has refused even an audience with the king. So Absalom went to his own house and he did not see the face of the king, which is this wonderful way in the Hebrew of expressing the fact that he didn't get to, lie, to lay eyes on dad. Okay, so, verse 25. Now, in all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. He's one of those central casting guys. If you were going to order up, you know, a really good-looking, square-jawed, big-muscled guy to play Thor or something, that's him. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Gosh, the guy's like perfect. Right? He's like perfect. Whenever he, had, whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That's at least five pounds. Five pounds of hair he cuts off once a year. Now, my hair has never grown enough to ever weigh. I don't know. I could have grown up my whole life in it, and I don't think it ever weighed five pounds. Five, is it five pounds like a lot of hair? Yeah. Yeah. That's like a lot of hair. So just, you know, we're given this. What are we to picture? This big, because strapping, really, really good looking. Oh, he's not really hairy. Now... But it's got a lot of flowing locks. You know, they're just, it's just got, he's got enough hair that he could take, he, he could share it with every one of us in this room. And I would be most happy if he did. Okay? Yeah, he's got so much hair. Oh, man. He's just like, he's, he's like perfect. Just like, just like, just like, he's like a long haired Tom Brady. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now, <laughs> you can have a lot of fun with these stories if you want to. 27. But you see, underneath them is all tragedy, right? That's, that's, it's all, it's all tragedy. Ab Amnon rapes Tamar. Absalom kills Amnon. It's all filled with tragedy. It's all driven by tragedy. It's driven by, by what David, the sword David brought into the house when he took Bathsheba and then um, had, and then murdered Uriah. And now many years have passed and it's still there. You know, we say things like time heals all wounds, but there are wounds that are deep, deep, deep. Wrongs that are so, just so wrong, so, so against everything that life should be, that, that time doesn't really heal those, right? Think about our world. Um, some killer goes free to everyone's shock. We would still want justice done 10 or 15 years later, would we not? Do you think that's not happened when they find the guy eventually or something? Sure. He's living a different life somewhere, got a new family. Justice needs to be done. 
Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar. Hmm. Right? He named his daughter after his raped and now desolate sister who's living in his household condemned there. And Absalom's daughter, Tamar, was beautiful. Just, just beautiful. The, the point of, the, of the, this is that he named her Tamar. That's poignant. It's telling. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Two years he's living in his own house. David won't see him. Then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab refused to come to him. Joab is David's guy, not Absalom's guy. So he sent a second time for Joab, but Joab refused to come. Then Absalom said to his servants, look, here's what we're going to do. Joab's field is next to mine, and he's got a crop of barley there. Go to his field and set it on fire. Right? I mean, that'll probably get Joab's attention. That's Absalom's goal. He's tired of being ignored by Joab. Absalom is the king's son. In fact, in the realm of births, Absalom is the successor because he murdered <laughs> his brother, the prince. Then Joab did go to Absalom. So Absalom's servants set, field, set the field on fire. Then Joab, of course, did go to Absalom. And he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to him, Look, I sent word to you, and you, and you said, I sent word to you and said, Come here, so I can send you to the king to ask this simple question. So this, is, this is Absalom's question to the king. Why have I come from Geshur? Why did I come back? What's the point of this? You sent Joab to fetch me, to bring me back. And now it's been two years and you haven't seen me. What's it all about? Why did we go through this? I was happy up there. I could make a life up there. Why have I come back from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. And then Absalom says, Now then, I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Absalom is ready to get this over with. What is it like? It's like this, this big cloud of tension just hanging over everything. And Absalom is determined to push it away. Let him live. Let Absalom live or let Absalom die. Mercy, justice, whatever it is, it can't go on like this any longer. It's been many, many years since Absalom connived secretly 
to have the king's sons, including Absalom, Amnon, come to a dinner, at which time his servants set upon Amnon and murdered him. And Absalom took off to Geshur. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king, and he told him this. And the king summoned Absalom. Now, I want us to really pay attention to what it says here and what it doesn't say. And he, Absalom, came in and he bowed down with his face to the ground. That is proper obeisance before the king. If this were, you know, any subject of David's, really any visitor, anybody wanted anything from him, they would show proper obeisance, O-B-E-I-S-A-N-C-E, obeisance. And it is prostrate on the ground, face to the ground, hands forward, just like you see in the movies. You know, supplication before the king is another way to put it. And that's what Absalom does. And so what does David do? David kissed Absalom. Now, what do you what kind of kiss do you think that is? Kiss of death. Kiss of death. Here, here I got two responses. The kiss of death and the kiss of forgiveness. I think it's the it's the kiss it's the kiss a king gives, you know, a subject. Stands him up on both cheeks, that kind of thing. Does it say anything about forgiving? No. Does it say anything about hugging? No. Does it say anything at all other than he kissed Absalom? Does he invite, and it's an acknowledgement that Absalom's alive, does he invite Absalom to move to the palace? Anything other than Absalom is obeisant, and then he stands up, and David kisses him. <laughs> I know, that's, that's cute, huh? Okay. Does that, I think to see more in, in that, you, are re, you have to read stuff into this. I think the terseness of it, the, 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 it's so sparsely told because it's so empty of anything that you expect or are hoping for. No confrontation. Does he say to Absalom, in essence, what the heck were you doing? You murdered your brother. What do you expect me to do with that? None of that. To what degree do you think David views himself as being complicit in all of this? Remember, just think back a few weeks to when we were reading the story of Tamar's rape. And what was David's response then to the crime committed by Amnon, his firstborn son? None. None. It's like it never happened. Didn't discipline his children. Didn't discipline his children. Didn't discipline Amnon. How much do you think that fed Absalom's rage with his brother? It's like... My father isn't doing anything about this. He raped my sister. And where's David? 
always lounging around on the roof again. Got him into trouble before. You know, it's, it's, you're, it's so tempting, I think, because we have a lot of images in our head and so forth of, of who David is, to read things into these stories that aren't there. And I think there are places in the story where what is left out is very important. The fact that, no, David doesn't do anything when, when Amnon rapes Tamar and she is made desolate. Desolate, that's the word, desolate. And now Absalom returns, no mention of forgiveness, no mention of justice, no mention of anything. Obeisance, he kissed him. Thoughts? Yes. That's that. Okay, so the question is, why did David even send Joab up to get him? Well, that's that's Absalom's question, right? Why did you? Well, I. Okay, so we're not told to punish him. How conflicted is David in all of this? Does he want his son back? Oh, I think he does. Uh, I think he wants Absalom back. And he sends Joab to get him. But when Absalom comes, David can't reconcile the fact in his own mind. Now, I hate to read David's mind, but he can't reconcile in his own, own mind that he loves Absalom and Absalom murdered Amnon. And that freezes him into nothing. You know, we just see such a different David than we did early on. He should just confront him. Absalom is happy to be confronted by his father, but his father won't. Up in, up in Gesher? Yeah, in well, maybe. We're not told too much of that happening up in Gesher, but keep an eye on what happens, right? Ahead in this. Yes. What? Hmm. You know, Nathan the prophet, Nathan the, Nathan the prophet came and confronted David. So what are we seeing? we're seeing the outworking of David's sin. Go back and look at what, let's go back and look at what Nathan says to, to David in chapter 12. Ah. So this is 12:11. This is after the telling of the story and David burning with anger and Nathan spinning on his heels as I see it and going, you are the taker, you are that man. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. 
Before your very eye, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. This taking of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So it makes it seem like God is going to sit on the top of Mount Olympus, or that, that's mixing times, right? And, and, and just be waiting there to send lightning bolts down upon David and bring about all this calamity. But God doesn't do that. That isn't how God set this world up. In this world, there is a fabric of moral causality. God doesn't have to move these people like chess pieces or puppets around. What is happening is the, is the living out of that, of the violence and crime that David did. To me, it is like when, when, when um, God reveals himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in chapter 34, and, you know, and I will visit upon the children, I will visit the sins of the father upon the children and the children's children and the children's children's children. And people read that as if it's saying that God is just waiting to smite your great-grandchildren because of what you did. And God's up on that mountaintop, poop! No, that's not it. God is saying that there is this fabric of moral causality that, that plays out. The famous verse, my, one of my favorite from Ezekiel, is when God is talking about this and he says, you know, I will turn their sins back upon their heads. What David is doing, has done, is now turning back upon his head. Violence breeds violence. We all know that. You don't have to be a Jew or a Christian to look around the world and realize that violence breeds violence. Children brought up in violent households are more likely to be violent themselves. It's just a fact. Blessedly, it doesn't have to be that way. Probably isn't more than it is, but it's certainly children brought up in a household filled with bigotry are more likely to be bigots themselves. I grew up in the deep south. I know that for a fact. Right? That's how it is. And now you just see it being played out. This moral, this fabric. I, li I like that phrase. It's not original with me. It's Terrence Fretheim. Terrence Fretheim this fabric of moral causality. He said it's not like silk, it's not tightly, so you can say, but what about this, what about this, what about, but it's more like burlap, but it's there. And, and, and this is, and David sees, he has seen this happen in, his, in front of his eyes. Imagine, I'm a parent. I can't even imagine what it would do to me if one son raped his sister and then was murdered by another son. That's David. I mean, David isn't mentioned very much in any of this at this point, but that's David. And guess what? Being a king in the palace, everybody sees it. 
God, Nathan said, you know, God's telling you, you know, you did this Bathsheba and Uriah stuff in secret, conniving and all the rest of it. But this is going to be in broad daylight. Everybody's going to see what's going on, David. And anyway, so, yeah. That's a long response to Jan's question, but there you go. You get wind me up, I get going. I get wound up. I get wound up. <laughs> okay. So, for chapter 15, right? So we get another time indicator. This is not as specific as the two years or four years. It's just in the course of time, which is what we were told between Nathan confronting David after Bathsheba and Uriah and the rape of Tamar. In the course of time, Amnon decided he really, really wanted to get it on with his sister. And, but this was a lovesick little puppy. Remember all that? Yeah. Crazy. But so, story so often told. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and wealth. I mean, come on. He's an important guy, actually, in the scheme of things, is he not? Is he not the king's eldest son? Granted, it's because he murdered the, the older brother, but he is. And with 50 men to run ahead of him when he's in his chariot. So he's got the chariot, he's got these guys. Whew, he's got like his bodyguard. There's entourage. There is posse. Is there a more current word than posse? Nope. No? Posse yeah. still good? Yep. Okay. I depend on Lauren to keep me up to date on all the right link. Yep. Verse 2. He, Absalom would get up early. Now pay attention to what he's doing. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. So he goes outside the city gate. There's a road leading in through the gate and he would stand there. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from, my friend? I'll embellish this just a bit. And the dude would answer, your servant is from, fill in the blank, one of the tribes of Israel. I'm from, you know, Manasseh or Ephraim or Dan or whatever. Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, I've heard, I've listened to you, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. You see, what is he doing? He's a politician at this point. What do you want? I'll give it to you. He is, he is, he is, he is rounding up votes with lots of promises. Lots of promises. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, do that obesity thing or something close to it, Absalom would reach out, take the hand take hold of the man and kiss him. 
right? Just say, no, you don't need to do that. It's just me. I'm Absalom. Come on. I'm one of you guys. Right? If only. If only. If only. Verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so, clever politician that he is, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Boy, that's a lot packed into a very short few words. What does it mean? Absalom is gathering a lot of popularity around himself. What's contributing to the popularity? He's so beautiful. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Why, why are we told any of that? Why are we told that he was the most handsome person and all? What does it sound like? Who else came from central casting? Saul. He looked the part. He's Gaston. This is Gaston with a wealth of hair. <laughs> Right? Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, obviously. So, it's all leading you up to the point, leading us up to the point, where Absalom is conniving to become this very, very popular figure in Israel. Sure, he's going to use his looks. What politician does it if they have them? Right? I'm thinking of some right now, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to say anything. Okay. <laughs> don't do it, Scott. I need Patty here. Did, Mona, tell me, don't do it. Okay. Thank you, Mona. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now look at verse seven. This is no flash in the pan. At the end of four years. So he has now been back in Jerusalem from Geshur for how long? Two years plus the in the course of time and now four more years. So, well, David's king for 40 years, but, but that isn't how long Absalom's been back from Geshur. It'd be, he wouldn't be nearly so cute if 40 years had passed. So if we, right, because, right, he comes back, he comes back from Geshur, David doesn't see him for two years. Absalom gets disgusted. He demands an audience. He gets an audience with the king, but that's all he gets is a royal audience. Then we're told at the beginning of 15, in the course of time, which indicates not a short period of time, in the course of time. Some time passes. And then, so he's starting to build up his political campaign out there making friends, making promises, riding around in the chairs, looking the part, using his good looks and long hair. You know, he's very photogenic. They don't have photographs, but he's as photogenic as they come. And now four years of that pass. And Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron. Let me go to Hebron. Now Hebron, let me advance it. Huh. Okay. 
Here's Hebron. Hebron is just south of Jerusalem. Hebron is a notable place. It, it was the capital of the tribe of Judah um, before David moved everything to Jerusalem. It's where Saul was crowned. It's where David was crowned. It's an important place. And it's possible that the people in Hebron resented a bit that David kind of took everything away and moved it all to Jerusalem. They probably felt like, well, we had a perfectly satisfactory capital for all of this in Hebron. This is where all this should have been done, the building and the rest of it. But David took it to Jerusalem. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to Yahweh. While your servant, Absalom, was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If Yahweh takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship Yahweh in Hebron. Okay. So, in support in, of, in evidence in support of my hypothesis that David is frozen into inaction because of his rage with Absalom and his love of Absalom at the same time, I think I can imagine many fathers, parents have been caught, felt themselves caught in that. Um, when a child, a grown child, has done something terrible, he's just dense. How long has it been? It's at least six years, right? It's probably, I don't know, it might be seven years. I don't know what the course of time is. It's at least six years, and now Absalom comes and says, hey, six years ago, let's see, six years ago, how long was that? That was 20? 2018, 2017? 2017. 2017. Lots happened since then. In all that time, he never went to David once and said, hey, way back then, uh, I mean, I, when I was up at I promised I would come and go to Hebron and offer sacrifices to God. Now, six years later, plus whatever more there is, he now comes to David and says, hey, I need to go fulfill this vow. If I were David, I would have asked, come on, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> Where have you been? What? what, now? But the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel, where he's been politicking for how many years? Well, in the course of time, he started politicking, and it's four years later, right? And we have the course, in the course of time, first to 15, then we get the time marker of, I mean, it, the timing must matter, or the writer wouldn't give it to us in this way. So it's been four years that he's been politicking, okay? Because he starts politicking after the first verse of 15, and then we get the time marker in verse 7. And the king says, go. So Absalom's been at this politicking for a long time. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 
So what's happening? A coup. A rebellion. Absalom is rebelling against his father's rule and setting himself up as the king of Israel. It's a coup. I, I mean, I mean, David, yeah, but yes, yes, yes. But now, it, now it's really happening because he has to get, Absalom has to get the people of Israel with him, the people of Israel on his side. And so that's what he spent four years doing, making himself so popular. The polls say that he is just, just popular, popular, popular with, with the people. Absalom is king in Hebron. Verse 11, 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom to Hebron. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently. The writer wants you to know that these 200 men who accompany Absalom to Hebron, probably somewhat as a protective, because this is a violent world, that they are with him and they do not know what his plan was. Okay? They went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, David's right hand, David's Concierge, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. So Absalom has gone to Hebron. He's setting himself up as a rival to David to supplant David as the king of Israel. And this is what David has brought on himself. So let's see the opportunities when, at least in my opinion, he, David, could have prevented this. He could have prevented it by taking action against Amnon when Amnon raped Tamar. He could have prevented this by taking action against Absalom when he ran up to Geshur. David has the power. Here is David's kingdom. Guess there's a little tiny place up there. David had the power to go and get Amna, to go and get Absalom and bring him back to face justice, but he doesn't. So when he eventually brings Absalom back, he neither forgives him nor condemns him. He just kisses him on the cheek and just festers and festers and festers and festers. When Absalom, first of all, David seems blind to the fact that Absalom's been politicking all this time. Maybe he's just frozen, just frozen. He knows what he himself did. And perhaps that guilt just freezes him. He doesn't stop the politicking. I find it hard to believe he doesn't know about it. He 
He doesn't ask Absalom, well, what the heck do you need 50 men on a chariot for running you around town with your flowing locks? Well, what's that all about? Doesn't do that. When Absalom says, well, you know, I made this vow six years ago and I don't want to go down the road and do it. He doesn't ask about that. He just says, I'll go in peace. You know, there is, I think all of us learn that in life, you have to deal with things or they can fester and grow and grow and the ripples get larger and there's more, there's more ripples that accompany them and out they go. And now David's, now David lo- has lost control of this completely, whatever control he had. And Absalom's down in Hebron ready to declare himself as king. And if David asks his, his um, counselors and the court people around him about this, about where Absalom stands with the people, what are they going to say to him? What does, what does the scripture say a few paragraphs before? Well, you know, David, he's stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. He's really popular. They're going to be with him, David. They are going to be with him in this. Besides, David... There have been, people know about Bathsheba and they know about Uriah. They know, David. That's my take on it. But anyway, he's definitely, we're told that Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. All right, so any thoughts or reflections or questions at this point? I can see the people in Jerusalem. Absalom's coming, Absalom's coming. 50 people running ahead of a guy in a chariot like this. There he goes, look at him. There he goes. I mean, you know, look at him. Look how powerful he is. Look how, yeah, man, look at this. He's like, you want to be on his team, don't you? <laughs> The question is, why was David considered such a great king? Here is the answer to that. He is the idealized king of Israel because of 2 Samuel 7. When God comes to David and says, David, one from your household will sit on the throne of Israel. That's really what it's about. You know, um, David is a deeply flawed person as we all are and we go to Sunday school what do we hear about David David and Goliath and stories like that about him and so the David you see in those chapters in first Samuel where he's going you know Saul killed his thousands David is tens of thousands and he's getting the foreskins necessary to you know to get Michael as a bride and all that stuff um, but it's brought him to where in chapter 11 he was sitting bored in the afternoon when he should have been out with the troops, sitting bored in his palace, on his palace roof, and he sees Bathsheba and he takes her. And that's a moment that, I don't know, it changed, it changed everything for him. Um, the, I will say, 
one of the things that makes David remarkable is that he does repent. He, he sees what he has done. Don't you see in the Psalms? He does repent. But good golly, you know, um, David does many things that we are not to emulate. And now, that moral, that fabric of moral causality that I was talking about, where has that led? From David's, from Nathan confronting David over his taking of Bathsheba and his taking of Uriah's life, where has that led David? That burlap there? His own son is rebelling against him. Wow. So the question is, really, at this point is going to be, how does David respond? Which David are we going to see? Are we going to see the David of 1 Samuel consulting God, making good choices, godly choices? Are we going to see the David of 2 Samuel 11, 12, 13, 14? Which one? No. I mean, that's what makes David such an enduring figure, right? Obviously, Israel saw this because they wrote it down. You know, the book of Chronicles, which covers the same period, this stuff is all cleaned up. You, don't, you never meet Bathsheba in the book of Chronicles because it's so unworthy of a king of Israel. Yes. Well, okay, he's God's choice. Yes, so was Saul. Right? Yeah. Um, and there's a phrase that is brought into English as David was a man after God's own heart, which has often been taken to be, well, he's got the kind of heart that God wants us all to have. But from what I can find out, the Hebrew is closer to he is God's choice. See, could God find the perfect person to be king? How did God, how did God find the perfect person to be king? He became. He took on human flesh and became that king himself in the person of Jesus. You see? The kings of Israel are a flawed lot. The kings of the northern kingdom of Israel are bad to a person. There's a few good ones in the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah, Josiah, a few get a good report card. But they're us. Yes? It's kind of like so often Jesus is portrayed as the new Adam the new David, right? That when Jesus comes, he fulfills. That's a big piece in theology. Like all these people that try as they might weren't perfect in every way, but were used by God. And yes. Abraham. Yes. It's so cool because then you hear all of David's flaws and think, wow, Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Yes. So, so if you start with, because Paul likes to talk about the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. But Adam was flawed. Because he and Eve rebelled against God, not Jesus. Jesus as, as the, the one from the line of David, the one worthy of being Messiah from David's line, 
he, he's not flawed like David was, right? So he's not like, he, it's not even like he's the new David. He is who God hoped David would be, whom God hopes we all are, but aren't. Who God hoped Adam would be, that Adam and Eve would make the right choice. But they didn't, and we make the wrong choice so often. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Mona. Uh, Scott, in 1512, the man that Absalom sent for, yes. he was the counselor to David. Ahithophel? Yes. Yes. He was Bathsheba's grandfather, my notes say. Okay. And well, he, I'm. Okay. As if he knows. Well, you know, I think he, we're going to see him again. I believe okay. in in this. But um, everybody saw what David had done. The, if 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 Ahithophel is working secretly against David, having been Bathsheba's grandfather, it tells you that the Bathsheba story is not the story in the movies. Because in the movies, it's all romance, and she's frustrated, and David's frustrated, and they come together in this loving, caring relationship and so forth, as opposed to his taking of her. That would take a grandfather off. <laughs> okay, my friends. So, verse 13, a messenger came, and the messenger told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. The political campaign, each facet of it, has been successful. Then David said to all, his to all of his officials who are with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. In what way does it not make sense? David was a warrior. I mean, you know, way back. And all of a sudden now, he's going to flee because Absalom, he knows what Absalom's doing. You know, and it just it makes no sense. Maybe a, maybe a couple of thoughts. For David to confront Absalom would require David to take up arms against his own son which he knows in his heart he may be unwilling to do. Any autocrat, king, knows that you do have to keep the people on your side somehow because there's so dang many of them. So when we're told that Absalom stole the hearts of the people David realizes that this is the fight he can't win. At least in the short term he's not going to win this because the people are going to rally to Absalom, not to David. But I think a piece of it is also his conflict about, you know, this is his own son. This is his own son. And 
he knows what Absalom is capable of, overtly capable of. Amnon, Absalom murdered Amnon. Of course, David knows what he's capable of because David murdered Uriah. A little bit more secretively, but same end, right? David is older by now. Old. Okay, so here's what I'm being asked. Is David older or old? Well, I consider myself older, but not old. And I don't think David is yet 72. So, but yes, he is getting up there. And that, what does that create in a person? A different perspective on things. Makes you conservative, makes you cautious, right? Makes you weaker, which is actually how the book of Kings begins with David as an old man, and when the book of Kings opens. So, what we're to keep in what we're to keep an eye on in this is whom? Who are we to keep an eye on in what comes ahead? Absalom or David? Whose story is this? It's David's story. It's David's story. The fact that David is not taking action here and these things are all happening doesn't mean it's not his story. You know, when, when you don't do, not doing something is often the same as doing something. You're, you're right. You can't just say, well, I, I, I'm not going to choose. Well, you are choosing then, right? So, but it's David's story and to get back to what I was talking about a minute ago, the question is, how is he going to respond to all of this? What sort of David will we see in light of this catastrophe? His own son rebelling against him. Well, verse 14. David says to its officials, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Now, I don't think that's Absalom's plan. He doesn't want to put the city to the sword. He's once, he's stolen the hearts of all Israel. But <clears throat> David decides they're going to flee. They're going to flee. They're not going to fight. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So, naturally, he's got some folks who are with him. David does. You would expect that. He's been the king a long time. But this is a terrible, terrible, catastrophic turn of events. So, in verse 16, the king set out with his entire household following him. But he left, this is important to remember, he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. <laughs> These are women who are significant in the harem, who are going to take care of the palace. You could, you could change the translation and call them second wives in the ranking of wives in the harem. But he's left, he's give, left 10 of them in charge of the palace. So the king set out, and with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with the Carathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. So he goes to the city gate, they're leaving, he stands, 
he watches them go, right? This is a dramatic departure from Jerusalem for David, who many years before had entered in great triumph, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, dancing before it. Remember, Michael despised, looked out the window of the harem and despised him for it. And now he's standing at the city gate, seeing his whole household, his supporters, his warriors leaving. Now, the king said to Ittai, the Gittites, we're going to meet people that we're going to need to remember. This is the first of them. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back. Stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner. You're an exile from your own homeland. You came only yesterday and today. Shall I make you wander about with us? Not literally yesterday, but you know, you've been here a short time. And, and now, are you going to leave and wander around with us? When I don't even know where I'm going? Go back. Take your people with you. May Yahweh show you, show you kindness and faithfulness. That's a good moment for David. Is it not? Yep. We see, we, we find the word of, the name of God on his lips. That's a good thing. Been a while since we had that from David. May Yahweh show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as Yahweh lives and my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, death, there your servant will be. I am with you, David. I am with you. And I'm staying with you. And I'm leaving with you. And wherever you wander, I will wander. It's a little reminiscent of Ruth, who tells Naomi, right? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's Ittai, the Gittite. So David said to Ittai, well, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king crossed the Kidron Valley. That is a valley that runs down the eastern side of Jerusalem. Down in the bottom of the Kidron Valley sits the Garden of Gethsemane. On the eastern side of the Kidron Valley you have the Mount of Olives from that side that Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And David is now leaving out that eastern side. There is um, uh, the eastern gate. There's no temple yet. There's no temple mount or no temple yet. But he's leaving, that, leaving out that side across the Kidron Valley. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. This is just a terrible time. Regardless of what side you think you're on, regardless of what choices David makes or Absalom makes, this is terrible. These are all cousins. This is the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They can all trace their heritage back to one of the sons of Jacob. And now they're, now it's this, just open rebellion against the king 
whom God had chosen. And all the people, this is David's people, moved on toward the wilderness, which is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so when we come back next week, we will meet Zadok. And then we will meet Zeba. These are all people with names that none of us have, but they are, they are, they are people who you will meet again later. So, wow, just, just, to, just picture as you leave today, David and his folks streaming out of Jerusalem, Absalom and his men on the march, Absalom's ready to set himself up as king. It's a sad, sad story, a dark turn in the history of Israel. Okay? So we'll pick up there next week. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, hold us close to you. Help us to make good decisions, the decisions you want, you would want us to make. Decisions that reflect your moral will for our lives. Your way in this world. Your path for each of us. Loving you, loving neighbor. Being people of patience and kindness and joy and compassion and self-control. It's what you hope for each of us. It's what you hoped for David. And we're grateful, ever grateful, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.